T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. Blast off into the potosphere with DGP nominal. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. As always, I'm not alone this evening because through the wonders of technology should be John Berger. Hello, hello, hello. Back to Mary Poppins again. No, if that was the case, I'd do. I'd intentionally try to do a really, really bad Cockney accent, you know, <laughs> just to honor Dick Van Dyke. <laughs> But when a Yankee even cringes at a Cockney accent, you know it's not all that good. (laughs) Now, um, before we get going this evening, I want to uh, mention a couple of things. Firstly, I'd like to um, thank everyone who has been in touch with us, liked us on Facebook and followed us on Twitter due to our Feel the Force Day episode. It's much appreciated. Keep visiting the Facebook page as we're still putting up photos from the event it is truly remarkable uh, the amount of people that have, have been in touch and um, uh, liked the photos individually like the photos I mean we've put up a about a hundred and something odd at the moment and you know people have been going through them individually liking them commenting on them and all kinds of things which is awesome yeah it says they're taking the time to do that yeah because a lot of people just say oh look at that group that's cool like done that, that's the whole thing secondly we would like to say a huge congratulations to Ian Hine and our friends at Dead Universe Comics for winning not one but two awards at the 2015 Aylesbury Vale Business Awards they came away with the best independent retailer and best business of the year hopefully in the new year Dead Universe Comics will be collaborating with us to bring you a regular rundown of what's new in the comic book world Um, it's much deserved with these awards these were the guys that I was working with for the Star Wars Day stroke comic book day celebrations uh, which we, we covered on the show and they do so much for the community they do lots for charity and they always have kids in from various different schools to do work experience with them and lots of different things like that so they're always doing bits for the community and um, he's been working on this for cool. <laughs> years Hmm. Um, I remember when he used to have the equivalent of like a flea market stall and he's worked his way up to the the store that he's got now you know and he runs gaming nights and things like that Um, so he's involved in so many different things and um, you know sometimes he he, he wonders if it's all worth it and to get two awards two major awards at this award ceremony yeah he, he really does deserve it no absolutely absolutely Right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to go launch the episode into the podosphere. What do you think, John? Shall we do it? Sounds good to me, and uh, we, we promise this time, folks, we'll try to keep it short and we'll keep it space-related. <laughs> about the ISS that 15 countries made a success took a lot of space flights for us to build a station as big as a football field two Johns on board but they got no bath orbits the earth in an hour and a half over 200 miles up off 
the ground and tipping them scales at a million pounds. Making benefits for humanity through new science and technology. Over 200 people have lived on board the heroes of Earth who were driven to explore. Space, that is, off the Earth, for the Earth, on the journey to Mars. Fifteen years ago this week, on the 2nd of November at 10.23am UTC to be precise, a crew entered the ISS for the first time, becoming Expedition 1, and the space community have gone absolutely nuts on the uh, social media, recalling their favourite moments from the orbital platform's history, using the hashtag 15 years on station. <laughs> now, I have a couple of moments that really stand out for me uh, from those 15 years and they are pretty personal ones the, the first one is actually going to Kennedy Space Center and seeing the Leonardo multi-purpose logistics module being readied for its first outing which was on my favorite shuttle in the fleet discovery on STS 102 now I took a photograph of it albeit not a very good one uh, but I'll put it in the show notes anyway <laughs> it was back in the day of pretty much point and shoot cameras because <laughs> with you know 15 years ago I didn't have a very good camera then <laughs> uh you know it's we still have point and shoot cameras except now they're on our phones yeah I mean this was an APS because I used to like the APS because it didn't mean fiddling around with the film and stretching it out and putting it in the back of the camera and uh, yeah. you just drop the cartridge straight in and away you go like a more advanced version of well 110 cartridges <laughs> oh god 110s <laughs> <laughs> they were horrible. Yeah. Yeah, they weren't all that good. Remember disc? My, Did you guys have disc over there? Yeah, my dad had a Kodak disc camera, yeah. That oh, was somewhere around here. I still got a, ne- a disc with negatives on it. I, <laughs> I don't even know if that can be processed anymore. I, I wouldn't know. I know you can still buy, um, if you go on eBay, you can buy APS drives to, to, to go onto your computer. So uh, I don't know how much they go for these days, <laughs> but it means you can just reprint, uh, reprint, and reprint and reprint. But um, I, that's the other thing I used to like about them was the um, you used to have the index sheet and and stuff, and it was a lot easier. But oh yeah, that's right. My one wasn't the best pictures that it could take, and the, because it was a clean room, you you couldn't actually go in there, and you had a, a glass screen in front of you. So it's almost like trying to take a photograph inside a fish tank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, better than no photo at all, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but I did get some quite good photographs whilst I was there. I'll have to dig them out, actually, my um, Kennedy Space Center photos. My second memorable moment was when Cosmonauts, and you'll have to forgive me here, Sergei Ryzansky and Oleg Kotev took the Olympic torch on a spacewalk as part of the Sochi 2014 Olympic torch relay. They even had a special mission patch made for the occasion and when i saw it i wanted one and guess what (laughs) i got one i actually had to approach a guy in in russia (laughs) and um he sent me one over it cost me about six pounds which is considering it's coming from russia um not too bad (laughs) 
Yeah. And that was with shipping as well, so it was that was pretty good. Oh, that's uh, cool. But at least I got one. It's a really nice patch. The, the difference on it is that the, the, the mission patch shows a, a cosmonaut holding the Olympic torch lit. <laughs> so that's not going to happen in space. Mm, no, no. <laughs> The idea of it was that the Olympic torch goes into space, so it's had the feel of space around it and everything. It goes back down to Earth, and then it connects with the previous lit flame so that it can continue the journey with the one that was sent into space. (laughs) Whoever came up with that idea was the absolute genius. There are some really fantastic videos out there uh, about people's thoughts of the 15 years on the space station, including the current crew who talk about it. And I'll put some of these up on the on the show notes as well. Did you have any thoughts about that, John? You mean like favorite moments? Yeah, yeah. Not really. I mean, they've been doing really cool things for 15 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess some of the more memorable were with the... Uh, uh, Chris Hadfield, you know, doing um, oh the the David, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. Space Odyssey. Space Odyssey. Oh, Odyssey. Geez. Yeah, that's yeah. like one of my favorite songs ever, and I forgot the name. I hate that. And the um, I hate that. But you know, doing that sort of stuff and the various experiments that they show, you know, that they can really only do in a weightless environment, which they've been doing for years. You know, it's just there's nothing that really stands out as wow, that is just so amazing. It's just the whole thing has been amazing. Yeah. Um, I, th- I think some of the shots that they've been able to get from the space station, even when they um, started to do the new checks on the space shuttles, you know, when they had mm-hmm. to do the flip maneuver, yep. uh, which you, obviously you can only get those shots from inside the space station. Yeah. And to see those shots for the first time, it's such an amazing maneuver yeah, to watch. those were neat. Like you say, Chris Hadfield, uh, the uh, the duet that he did with the Bare Naked Ladies, um, mm-hmm. that was a really cool one. And uh, obviously another musical one was Katie Coleman doing a duet on the flute with Ian Anderson from Jeffro Tull. I don't remember that. Well, that was awesome. <laughs> We're showing our age because we know who Jethro Tull is. Actually, Jethro, Jethro, <laughs> Ian Anderson used to be one of my clients, believe it or yeah, not. That was, yeah. That's cool. Um, he's, him and his sister came up with, um, you know how a lot of musicians and actors get into the food industry, like um, Paul Newman's sources? Yes. And, mm-hmm. Well, he did the same. They were Jethro's marinades. Huh. <laughs> and uh, it was his, his sister's idea, but she wanted a, a name to promote it so he came in on it and um yeah we used to produce the uh the bottle oh the the, the jars and things uh and, oh, the, nice. and the labeling for for their marinade so yeah he was one of my clients yeah so that's that was uh the 15 year anniversary has just been so quick <laughs> Yeah. And, and when you see the, the first images of the space station and then you see how it is now, it's almost a completely different craft. Oh, yeah, it's a beast by comparison. And and the things they managed to get done in the first year. I mean, it was started off with just three modules and then within like the first year, they had the second set of solar arrays put on there and uh, quite a few of the different uh, add-ons and, and things. Um, I didn't actually know until today, actually, I'd read into it, that um, three modules that they used to use. One was Leonardo, one was Raffaello. I don't think the other one was Donatello. <laughs> <laughs> that 
would have been awesome, dude. <laughs> the last one to go up was Leonardo, and it is now a permanent fixture on the space station because obviously they couldn't get it back down again after yeah. um, the shuttle. Uh, I'm sorry, but the the 80s teenager in me is... It would be amazing to get another one and just name them after the four turtles. Have it Michelangelo, yeah. And and then just make sure that there's like a pizza station on board. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's <laughs> sponsored by Pizza Hut. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry, that's just... That's, that, that's just the geek in me. What can I say? <laughs> I'm terrible. I know. Uh, there's a company called Space VR... They put up a Kickstarter and they got their goal. And what they want to do is put up a camera. You know how there's that one area of the space station where they've got that great view of Earth? Um, that like that, that rounded kind of uh, window area? Uh, is it a cupola? Yeah, I think so. They want to put one of these VR cameras inside there so that, you know, with whatever VR headset you got, you could look around and see what the view would be from that window area. Would that be very big, do you think? Actually, no, not really. No, not really. You figure, look at how big of a GoPro is, mm -hmm. and they get ridiculously good quality out of those. And it's pretty much kind of what they want to do here. So it just, it'd really just be this small box with a couple of cameras all linked in together, and then software would put everything together. The, the reason why I ask is because that area there is the, the area they use to birth the dragon capsules to mm -hmm. the because the Canada arm is connected not far from there so it's right. the best place to see to actually bring it in um, so I was just wondering whether it would get in the way <laughs> of what they're doing yeah, I'm with trying that. to see if there are dimensions listed to it like I said if you look at a GoPro or something like that they're not that big mm -hmm. you really don't need a whole lot of space now to do any kind of VR but I mean again I only print off the first few pages of what is usually a massive Kickstarter you know promotion the first model they said is probably going to be 2D and then they want to do a 3D version later but still you know to be able to just throw on whatever Google Cardboard or Oculus Rift or whatever VR headset you've got and just look around with not necessarily a live feed but at least a regularly updated feed from the space station just to see what they can see that's pretty cool. It would be awesome if it was live, but yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, I don't know how well, they, much... They do a, live feeds already, don't they? From, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it probably could be done, but maybe they've got that planned and it's down the road. Right now, they're just trying to get in there, baby steps and so forth. So, they got the funding, and uh, that doesn't mean it's going to happen, but the funding is obviously going to try to get them there because it's supposed to handle the uh, manufacturing, the securing it so it doesn't get damaged on the way up, that sort of thing. So who knows? Maybe you'll be able to slap on a Google Cardboard or an Oculus Rift and see what the space station people see. That'd be cool. On Halloween night, while ghouls and goblins did their trick-or-treating, an asteroid that is most likely a dead comet made a close flyby of Earth with radar images revealing its eerie skull-like shape. That was weird. <laughs> On October the 31st, asteroid 2015TB145 passed by Earth at a range of just over 300,000 miles, or 480,000 kilometers, placing it just outside the orbit of the Moon, where it posed no threat to the planet whatsoever. The timing of the flyby earned the asteroid, which is about 2,000 feet or 600 meters across, with the nickname Spooky. 
or some people call it the Great Pumpkin. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately for Skywatching hobbyists, uh, 2015 TB145 was extremely difficult to see from the ground, but the online SLU Community Observatory hosted a webcast that featured updates on the asteroid's path and discussions about the dangers of near-Earth asteroids. <laughs> Oh, nothing but yeah, doom and gloom mongering going on. Uh, yeah, but you know, the, but the reality is, it could happen. It, this is true. It, it, um, it absolutely could happen. I do like the SLU Community Observatory, and I do like some of the webcasts they do because some of the experts on there are, are good fun to listen to. NASA observed the asteroid using its Infrared Telescope Facility, or the IRTF <laughs> radar system. In oh, here we go. Um, Munakia in in Hawaii. Yeah, in Hawaii, the IRTF data may indicate that the object might be a dead comet, but in the images it appears to have donned a skull costume for its Halloween flyby. Slew's Trisha Ennis wrote on on an email update: the flyby was a treat for scientists because it allowed them to see the space rock up close with radar resolution as little as 6.6 feet or 2 meters on the surface which was pretty awesome (laughs) Um, scientists fired radio waves at the passing space rock using a 110 foot wide antenna at NASA's deep space network facility in Goldstone, California the radio waves were bounced off the asteroid and came back to Earth where they were collected using the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia. So it's <laughs> quite a big range that they were mm-hmm. using to do these things. Um, the radar images from those observations revealed asteroid 2015 TB145's true size and its speed. It's a bit larger than they previously thought, and the asteroid was hurtling through space at a whopping 78,293 miles an hour. Man. (laughs) This would generate a six-mile-wide crater if it Mm -hmm. was to hit the Earth, uh, said asteroid impact expert Mark Boslow, a physicist at the Sandia uh, National Laboratory in New Mexico. This is beautiful. It's such a high-resolution, nice image. You can see it rotating. You can see its features on the surface, he said. This is great science. The speed of the flyby is considered very high for an asteroid, according to a statement from JPL, um, NASA's Jet Propulsion Lab. The next large asteroid to make a close flyby of Earth or at least one that scientists know of, uh, won't take place until 2027, which is about the same time as the next eclipse, I think. I mean, no, we have eclipses all... You mean talking like the one that we just had? Yeah, like a total eclipse, yeah. I can't imagine it's going to be that long until we have another total eclipse somewhere in the world. Generally, we have some kind of eclipse pretty regularly. Mm, Thinking on that, the total eclipse that will be at sea from the UK won't be until about 2026 I'm sure I heard that somewhere huh well, I, mean, okay, I mean it just that maybe it's just regional that's when the next one will hit yeah yeah this was just announced uh, a few hours ago as we record this the MAVEN mission which is currently orbiting Mars to try to determine what happened to its atmosphere has uh, returned its information And it turns out that Mars appears to have had actually a thick atmosphere 
uh, warm enough to support water and possibly even life. But what happened is that over the millennia, the atmosphere has been stripped away. And what it turns out to is that the Maven uh, mission has been able to, to figure out that it's getting stripped away by solar wind at a rate of about 100 grams per second. Wow. So now that might not seem like a whole lot, but you talk about thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of years or whatever, that's still going to strip it all off. Oh, yeah. And they found that when the solar storms got more intense, that would increase by a factor of 10 or 20. I mean, that's how the atmosphere has been getting ripped off of Mars. Now, what this doesn't answer, and they still don't know, is why its magnetic field effectively collapsed. I mean, that's what keeps us from getting our atmosphere stripped off. We've got that natural magnetic field around the planet. It's what creates the auroras, and it's what deflects the solar wind so it doesn't rip our atmosphere off. Mm -hmm. And that one they don't have an answer to. I mean, it is very possible that if Mars still had their magnetic field to deflect the solar winds, then it's very possible they could have an atmosphere, maybe even like ours. So they've, they've figured it out, what happened, or how much of it has been stripping off over time. And, uh, I mean, there you go. Now, they did have, I think it's on the, the next cover of uh, Science Magazine, they actually have, like, a, a diagram or a, an enhanced image that shows it, this thing was actually able to pick up the eddies and the trails and so forth of the atmosphere being stripped away. And they found out that about 75% of it is getting ripped out uh you know, behind it, and that the rest of it, you know, some of it on the on the sides and some of it on the front as well. But it's neat because they were able to actually trace these things, and it looks like the the image when they finally compiled it, it looks like. Have you ever like you're driving through snow and a bunch of snow just goes up above the windshield? Yeah, I know what you mean. Part of it looks like that, but then the rest of it looks like these strands of loose fiber just getting ripped off the planet. It's actually really cool to look at. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, they're actually able to get images of how, or not so much images, but they were able to analyze how the atmosphere is being stripped away. And it's actually really cool to read. But, uh, so yeah, they, they've finally figured all of that out. And uh, they actually do have an animation showing how the atmosphere and the water of Mars might have been and the loss of it. So uh, we'll have a link to that one in the show notes, and i got to make sure to get that one over to you. And uh, it just seems, as you say, strange that the um, the magnetic field disappeared. Uh, it's a bit worrying because it could happen to us as well. Uh, oh, yeah, it, abs- it absolutely could, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely we can't do anything about that one. That's for sure. So, uh, yeah, but and, and that's just, that's still the big mystery is why did Mars disappear? Strange. The Rosetta spacecraft has detected molecular oxygen in the gas streaming off Comet 67P. The curious finding has sent scientists rethinking the ingredients that were present in the early solar system. What's mystifying the astronomers about the new find is why the oxygen wasn't annihilated during the solar system's formation. Molecular oxygen is extremely reactive with hydrogen, which was swirling in abundance as the sun and the planets were being created. The current solar system models suggest that the molecular oxygen should have disappeared by the time 67P was created about 4.6 billion years ago. Scientists said they were trying to find molecular oxygen in the 1986 Giotto spacecraft observations of Halley's Comet, 
the only other comet to get close up a visit from a spacecraft. The spectral lines of the oxygen are too faint to be seen from the Earth. This means even though molecular oxygen may be common in other comets, there's no way yet to confirm this theory. Rosetta spent more than a year following Comet 67P as it travelled around the Sun in a loop that came close to Mars orbit, then whizzed back to the outer solar system. In that time, Rosetta has detected many elements in the comet's coma, the cloud of gas around the rocky nucleus, such as water, carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide. These elements are common to other comets that scientists have observed in the past, but molecular oxygen was not expected at all, as the scientists said. Rosetta's mass spectrometer, the Rosina DFMS, uh, detected it over six months between September 2014 and March 2015. The scientists spent those months making sure that the oxygen was not an instrumental glitch. They observed that the oxygen was denser when the spacecraft was close to the comet and less dense when the spacecraft was farther away. The oxygen also seemed to follow the comet and remained in constant quantities as 67P shed its outer layers to the sun. With the detection of it confirmed, the scientists then asked themselves how it got there in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) There are two leading theories on how the oxygen got to the comet. Perhaps the oxygen as a gas dissolved or froze onto the icy grains that eventually came together to construct the comet. The problem with that theory is the gaseous molecular oxygen has only been found a couple of times outside of the solar system. This hints that this kind of gas must be very rare in the solar system. Also, chemistry suggests that it should transform into water ice rather than staying as molecular oxygen. Alternatively, maybe ice water on 67P's surface broke up as energetic or radioactive particles that bombarded the regolith, which is the the dust that covers the surface of the comet. The water made up of hydrogen and oxygen atoms could break up into molecular oxygen, which would in turn be incorporated into voids that are created in the ice. This sort of process could have created the oxygen molecules observed near the moons of Jupiter and Saturn. In this case, the moons would have been struck by high-energy particles from the gas giant planets, which have massive radioactive fields surrounding them. 67P, however, lacks this sort of immediate nearby source of radiation, so they're still none the wiser how it got there. <laughs> it does make them think, really, because if if this is something that is a common occurrence, they might have to re-th- rethink the way that the planets and, and things were created. Uh, you know, it, it's one of those times where you realize how dumb the rest of us are. <laughs> that they, they, they can understand these theories and they can come up with them and we're just like, uh, okay. It's cool, but I don't get it. <laughs> I, I, I must admit, when I was reading, to, I've I've read through about five articles to make this one article to try and put it into as easier terms as possible yeah. for for you know your layman terms to to understand really. Um, because a lot of it, I was going, huh? <laughs> you know, when I first saw this, I was like, well, why is that a big deal? I mean, if the comet is made of water, well, there you go. It's got H2O. And then I was like, oh, wait, molecular oxygen is O2, not O. Oh, okay. Well, that (laughs) destroys that thought there, John. (laughs) Others out there that are 
much more uh, oh absolutely it's very humbling intelligent than us are struggling with it <laughs> themselves yep. so um yeah there's a lot that's, of head scratching that's okay, uh, okay. <laughs> wait related to that Issa has also decided what they're going to do to end the Rosetta mission, seeing as how, well, by next year, it basically won't be able to function anymore. It'll be too far away from the sun to get any energy, and uh, it, it's basically going to end up dying anyway. So what they've decided to do is, and I wish they wouldn't use this terminology because it's not really true, they're going to crash land it on the surface of the comet. So obviously the Philly lander is already there. Uh, we're talking about the orbiting Rosetta satellite that's up above it. What they're planning on doing is that in September 2016, funding is going to run out, plus it's going to be so far away from the sun that it won't be able to receive enough energy from the sun to function anymore. So what they plan on doing is because the sensors on that one are so much more advanced than what's on the Philly lander, they actually want to bring it in in a nice, slow, controlled landing. Mm -hmm. they, they keep calling it a crash in the article, which kind of drives me nuts because when I hear crash landing, it's like, all right, we're going to make this spectacular engines at full. And that's not what they're doing. A bit like that. they want to take... Well, that's, that's what I... Maybe that's just the Yankee in me. What was that but, thing? Uh, they, they did that on the moon, didn't they? Didn't they crash something into the side of the moon to see what what reaction it would get? Um, uh, maybe. Yeah. I, oh, yeah, I do remember something about that. <laughs> but, um, so, but, well, they're just going to try to bring it in as, as cleanly as possible so that the instruments on Rosetta can get as much information as possible before it loses energy and so forth. And if you have any thoughts of, well, that's cool if they land it, then in a little over six years when the comet comes around again, then it can just, you know, maybe recommunicate with Earth and so forth. And not going to happen because when it lands, its satellite dish will no longer be pointing towards Earth. Mm -hmm. So... Even if it does wake up, we won't be able to get anything from it. Well, scientists are quite excited by it because as it gets nearer and nearer to the actual comet itself, they'll be able to get some really cool pictures just before it actually oh, well, makes contact. They were saying, they're saying it's going to be something like when it's 500 meters over the surface that it's going to have a resolution of one centimeter per pixel. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, I, I can understand why the scientific community are really getting excited about that. <laughs> So, I mean, this is this could release some pictures that are almost as good as the Pluto pictures. Oh, yeah. So, but that's going to be it. And, and once that's finally down, it's going to be lights out forever for the Rosetta. But what a cool mission. It's been a fairy tale of a mission, hasn't it, really? It's, this has uh, just been such an amazing decade, you know, for, for everything going on between Rosetta and, and uh, Pluto and, yeah. and the various other uh, moons going around uh, Jupiter and Saturn that the probes are going around. It's just, yep. this is amazing. And we're getting some incredible views of, of what else is out there. Brilliant probes out there. I mean, as I say, New Horizon, you've got Cassini, you've got... Even the little Martian rovers. Yeah. They're bringing back some fantastic yeah. images. Especially, weren't they designed for only six months? Yeah, something like that. Um, now they've been going on for years. And, and Curiosity has really proved itself. Setting up a, a lunar base could be made much simpler by using a 3D printer and also building it from local materials. Industrial partners, including renowned architects Foster and Partners, have joined up with ESA to test the feasibility of 3D printing using lunar soil. Have a listen to this. Planet Earth is protected by the atmosphere 
the layer of air and gas that surrounds it. The atmosphere shields the Earth from solar radiation, keeps the temperature balanced, and protects us from meteoroids. On the Moon's south pole, you can see almost perpetual sunlight on the horizon. This is the site of our lunar base. Conditions on the Moon are very different from those on Earth. Because the Moon has no atmosphere, there is no protection from solar radiation. There are extreme temperature fluctuations. And there is no protection from gamma radiation and no protection from meteoroids. The lunar lander has detached from the rocket launch and is on a course to Shackleton's crater, the moon's south pole. Inside the lander is a cylinder which contains an inflatable dome and two robot 3D printers. After the cylinder containing the habitation capsule has been unloaded, a dome is inflated from one end. This provides the support structure for construction, a little like scaffolding is used to build on Earth. The lunar habitation is built by a robot-operated 3D printer. At one end, it has a scoop to collect the regolith. In the center are the containers for the printing material. At the other end, there is a robotic arm with a printing head. The robot collects regolith from the moon's surface. Layers of this moon dust are built up over the dome to create the protective shell. This process takes about three Earth months. The shell is made up of a hollow, closed cellular structure. Under a microscope, it would look very similar to the close-up of a bird's bone. Like a bone, it is light and incredibly strong at the same time. When the base is complete, it can house four people. Inside the dome, they are protected from meteorites, gamma radiation and high temperature fluctuations. The original capsule functions as an airlock and technical support module. The skylights draw daylight into the living and workspaces, which are sheltered within a pressurized enclosure. This method is a pioneering advance in space-age construction at Foster & Partners, we're used to designing for some of the world's most extreme climates. We often use materials found locally to create sustainable buildings on Earth. While the Moon is an exciting new territory for architecture, the value of this logic endures. They are, as I say, a group of architects, and um, it's quite amazing that they want to get involved with this project. The 3D printing offers a potential means of uh, facilitating a lunar settlement with the reduced logistics from Earth, said Scott Hovland from ESA's Human Spaceflight Team. To demonstrate the project, UK's Monolite, which is a company, created a special 3D printer called the D-Shape Printer, with a mobile printing array of nozzles on a 6 meter frame to spray a binding solution onto a sand-like building material. 
The company more typically uses this kind of printer to create sculptures and is working on artificial coral reefs to help preserve beaches from uh, energetic sea waves. First, the simulated lunar material is mixed with magnesium oxide and pumped out to create a mould. Then, a binding salt is applied which converts the material into a stone-like solid. Monolite's current printer builds at a rate of around 2 meters per hour, but they are developing a next-generation design that should attain 3.5 meters per hour, completing an entire building in a week. During the demonstration, a 1.5-ton building block was produced, which of course would be almost weightless on the lunar surface. It's, it's pretty amazing, isn't it? It sounds like a pretty straightforward solution, Yeah, really. They're going to have all this dust, just need a binder to it, and boom, there you go. That, that, that was actually taken from a video. Um, I'm going to put the video up on the show notes so you can see what it's all about. There's also a load of photographs, including a picture of this printer that they used for the demonstration and the block that they actually produced which does kind of look like the close-up of a bird's bones really it's it's almost like a honeycomb effect it's going to be really cost effective so basically you can send one of these uh, modules up to the moon and let it do its thing so it takes three months to make the whole complex um, and in that time you could be sending people up there and it'll be all ready for them to live in and do their experimental work whilst they're up there. We do need to start getting back on that. I think we kind of we, we take that for granted now because oh Mars and and all of that. It's like well, why don't we start like just with the moon, seeing as how it's far more feasible to try to get more permanent st- you know, stations up there. Well, it seems to be NASA's big thing is Mars, but R- Russia and uh, the Europeans, it seems to be moon- the going back to the moon is 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 very big for them. Oh, it's not to say that going to Mars wouldn't be an incredible achievement, but um, why not also look at going back to the moon since that, I think, would be a far more attainable goal. Yeah. Um, how long does it take to get to the moon? Two days, isn't it? Two, three days, something, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Whereas it takes, what, 18 months <laughs> to get to Mars? <laughs> yep. Oh, well. Oh, by the way, I did verify. You are correct. It looks like you, you guys are not due for a full lunar eclipse until about 2026. However, we Yanks are going to be subject to two of them. Uh, well, actually, uh, the whole Americas, North and South America. In 2019 and 2022, we will get two lunar eclipses on those. Right. But it, looks, it looks like you guys ain't going to get nothing. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, and I think there's some due in the um, Southern Hemisphere as well. There are a lot due in the Southern Hemisphere. Yeah. It's kind of funny. The one in 2019, if you look at the actual diagram for it, it's almost like the moon is saying, only people in North and South America, and that's it. Because it's like the, the parabolic uh, shape that they show on the map mm-hmm. perfectly fits North and South America, and then kind of just like completely fades out once it hits Asia and Europe. You're going to have to come over here. Yeah. There you go. (laughs) That impossible electromagnetic drive just won't go away. Apparently, uh, one of the top engineers who have been playing with it at NASA recently made... Now, granted, this is a blog post. He admits it is not peer-reviewed, so none of this really matters. But, obviously, there was a big stir the first time this thing was talked about uh people were saying no it's 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 getting anomalous readings because of this because of that because of the other thing and it's residual heat and blah 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 this thing is impossible and rah 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 rah. well 
apparently, okay, I have his name here somewhere, Paul March. He posted on there, and he's one of the principal investigators on this EM drive. So he, he published this on the NASA Spaceflight Forum. So it's just, you know, just a bulletin board forum kind of thing. But he said, effectively, you know, look, we've accounted for this. We've modified it to account for this and this and this. They made a whole bunch of tweaks to it, uh, various changes to try to accommodate the the criticisms that people have had of it, had for it so far. Uh, he says that... Um, I will tell you that we first built and installed a second-generation closed-face magnetic damper that reduced the stray magnetic fields in the vacuum chamber by at least an order of magnitude and any Lorentz force interactions it could produce. That was one of the big complaints. This is just, you know, Lorentz force results and they're trying to take care of all that. So he also said that he accommodated for the the thermal issues with it because that was another uh, thing that people were saying. Look, the any thrust you're getting is just the heat of the engine being directed out the cone. And he also said, you know, they accounted for that as well. And he says, quote, and yet the anomalous thrust signals remain. So again, there's nothing definitive, nothing peer reviewed, but. Basically, what he's saying is that, look, we've accounted for a bunch of stuff that people say is the cause of this. We're still getting a reading. Again, it, it doesn't necessarily mean anything. Uh, it, it could very well be that even if they do find out, hey, you know, this is actually working, it might not produce enough thrust to really be viable. Who knows? But just the fact that, you know, we have top guys at NASA saying, look, we were counting for a lot of these things that could be producing anomalies and it's still showing something. That is a really cool kind of thing. I think one of the things that really drives me nuts about this, and I ranted about this when we first talked about it, mm -hmm. was that we have these human written laws on physics. And so much of the scientific community seems to act like these are immutable. You cannot change these. Well, yeah, you can because we don't know everything there is to know. But just the fact that they're saying, you know what, physics might need to be tweaked a little bit if this thing actually works. That's that's really cool to think about. I mean, as, as I say all the time, these things are just theories. Of course they can change. That's what science is all about. Um, and, that, and that's part of what really bothered me about the community's reaction to this. It's like, you know, these guys at NASA are doing exactly what scientists are supposed to do. They ran an experiment. They got results. They modified the experiment to see what different results they got. Mm -hmm. And they're still getting the same kind of results even after modification. Which, to me, as a non-scientist, you know, says, you know, on the surface, it looks like there's something there. Doesn't mean it's going to turn out to be anything. But this is pretty cool stuff. Even if it doesn't turn out to be anything, just to say that, yeah, we're actually getting energy out of nothing. The ramifications for that and how we understand how things happen, those could be pretty big. That's the thing. I mean, some of these things that they are researching, which seems pointless to be researching, and they get years of fun funding for them, when there's something like this that could lead to something major and nobody's taking it seriously. But, you know, when you think about it, all experiments are pointless until they achieve results. Yeah. It's kind of a catch-22, really, because sometimes you need, bit, yeah. you need the funding to get the results, but if you can't produce the results, you don't get the funding. Yeah. Uh, so, um, I mean, that's... that's, <laughs> But at least just the fact that someone is saying, look, you know, this is weird. That's it, It's just neat to see that they're trying to take all of the, the criticism that people have had, and they're coming out and saying, look, we're still getting something, guys. 
that's pretty cool. Uh, but what's also neat is on a separate kind of engine, we've had ion engines for a few decades. Mm-hmm. But now physicists in France have figured out a way to optimize existing ion engines that could not only produce better thrust, but could extend the life of ion engines. Because right now the problem is that you've got a whole bunch of of high-energy ions inside these ion engine chambers, and it wears them out. So they're really only good right now for about 10,000 operational hours, which isn't enough to really... Well, it's certainly not enough to get a ship to Mars. You know, you you need something more like 50,000 hours. And what this team in France has done is they've modified the way that, that the engine produces its thrust to hopefully deflect some of those engines away from uh, the walls of the chamber which lead to the chamber breakdown mm-hmm. so I mean, they're still trying to figure out if this is going to have any kind of impact but the fact that we're right now if you look at you know any of our, our spacecraft top out at about 32 to 36,000 miles an hour and right now they're looking at potentially going to 45,000 miles per hour or more you, you take the, the Pluto landing that could uh, not landing but um, get, get in there <laughs> yeah the, the Pluto mission that could cut off what two three years that's pretty significant now granted it would need a lot more operational hours than 50,000 to do that but just the fact that they're working on on taking this and you know being able to extend the life of these ion engines is really amazing and because it uses plasma and uh, xenon in order to to create these charged ions they say that it takes roughly 100 million times less fuel than conventional chemical rockets that's mm-hmm. quite a fuel savings <laughs> <laughs> so really what it comes down to is that the only hurdle for this is trying to extend the life of that chamber. And hopefully this French team is able to do that because that would actually be really I mean, well, fuel savings for crying out loud. That'd be great. But I mean, to be able to get something to Mars that what, what 33% faster, that could have some ramifications as well for, for possible manned space flight. Yeah. Yeah, hopefully we'll have uh, news from them at some point regarding whether or not the engine itself is uh, the, the the chamber is able to get an extended life because that'd be really cool. Definitely. Now, while we're on the subject of propulsion, BAE Systems have bought a twenty percent stake in a company developing a radical engine that could propel aircraft into space. BAE is paying £20.6 million for the stake in Reaction Engines, which is developing a hybrid rocket jet engine called Sabre. Reaction says the technology would allow the launch of satellites into space at a fraction of the current cost and allow passengers to fly anywhere in the world in four hours. The British government is also investing £60 million pounds in the company it's based in the uh the cullum science center near abingdon in oxfordshire the the firm hopes to have a ground-based test engine working by the end of this decade and beginning unmanned test flights by 2025 according to reaction an aircraft using such engines could take off from any runway in the world and accelerate to more than five times the speed of sound before switching to rocket mode which will propel the aircraft into orbit 
Reaction has designs for such a plane, which it calls Skylon. The announcement represents an important landmark in the transition of Reaction's engines from a company that has been focused on the research and testing of the technologies for the Sabre engines to one that is now focused on development and testing of the world's first Sabre engine, said Mark Thomas, the managing director of Reaction Engines. One of the challenges for the engineers at Reaction is to manage the very hot air entering the engine at high speed. These gases have to be cooled uh, prior to being compressed and burnt with onboard hydrogen. Reaction engineers have developed a module containing arrays of extremely fine piping that can extract the heat and plunge the inrushing air to about minus 140 degrees centigrade in just one hundredth of a second. That is just <laughs> rapid. Man. It's new technology such as this that Reaction and BAE believe could put them ahead of the competition. The competition has been growing in the market to launch satellites into space with people such as um, SpaceX, Blue Origin and uh, Virgin Galactic obviously has their cargo systems as well. It's just amazing. I mean, uh, we've been following this story on, on the Garbage Pod for a little while. And before, they couldn't get any investors. And we were like, hmm, can we get some money together? Um, yeah. And now it's like, you know, big corporations and the government, you know, it's £60 million from the government. Um, to, to think that this was just, you know, a, a little notebook with this idea in it. And now it's, you know, coming into fruition. It's It's amazing. It's, and I thought the SR-71 was an amazing plane. Yeah. I'm definitely going to have to find some videos of the, the Sabre engines. Um, I know there are some out there because I've watched a few of them and I was completely blown away by the idea of it. But to think that you could go to anywhere in the world in, in four hours. Hey, once the transporter is developed, none of that will matter. Five seconds, you're there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not in our lifetimes. So it's quite amazing that we've had like three stories there, all basically about the same kind of thing, but three types of different propulsion. Well, I mean, when you think about it, that's that's the big inhibitor to a lot of things. Yeah, it's not that we can't do something in a. You know, it's just we can't get there fast enough. Mm-hmm. So it, yeah, I mean, whoever can make the next big thing in in propulsion, you know, whether it's here or it, it's space based or whatever. That's just going to make all of this even more amazing. Oh, yeah. You know, the, the Concorde had the right idea. It just wasn't done really well. Yeah. I mean, for its time, it was it was an unbelievable oh, yeah, yeah, craft. Yeah. It was amazing for its time. And beautiful to look at, too. Just an amazing-looking craft. When you used to see that coming in for land, it was awesome. Uh, I've been to Heathrow Airport a couple of times just to see Concorde come in. Nice. <laughs> Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Future round trips to Mars could take 500 days or longer. 
This year, NASA launched the first one-year mission to the International Space Station to help prepare for those future journeys. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, the journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. off into the potosphere with TGP Nominal. So, hey, how would you like to own a little bit of space history? Ooh. Ooh. Up for auction is a, plus for those of who are computer geeks can appreciate this, it's a 4K memory plane not like not like a chip, but it's called a memory plane. It actually, if you if you get a close up of it, it looks like a piece of woven fabric. But this was actually flown on Gemini three as one of its spacecraft computers. Wow! So because the Apollo missions, those were pretty much all manual. Mm-hmm. You know, they relied on thrusters and and so forth to get the the spacecraft to the moon. Uh, Gemini augmented that with computer usage. And this is actually a 4K memory chip. It's about roughly five inches by five inches. Uh, and it comes in, you know, a protective case and so forth. And it's actually a piece of the memory chip that, that orbited the Earth in the Gemini mission from March 23rd, 1965. According to this, uh, it's the first digital computer on a manned spacecraft. It was the first use of what they call core memory with a non-destructive readout. So, you know, it retained whatever settings it had. And this was back when uh, they used what were called drum memories, which weren't really as efficient. So, and this just made it, this this is one of the predecessors to our chips, really. Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, it was also IBM's first completely silicon semiconductor computer. Wow. So this thing is up for auction. And on the circuit itself, it says one plane of RANAM, uh, which is random access, non-destructive readout memory containing 4,096 bits of information. This memory orbited the Earth in the Gemini mission March 23rd, 1965. Bidding currently is at $2,500. But they estimated that it would make no more than eighteen hundred before, as they were setting it up for auction. Even that doesn't seem a lot. No, I mean, granted, this is niche. <laughs> this is this is well. I mean, no, not really. I mean, anybody who appreciates space could appreciate this, I'm sure. But uh, yes, yeah, so it's currently twenty five hundred dollars. But you know what? If I had that kind of disposable income, I might. I know somebody who probably would. And you know somebody who probably would. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, we, and we've spoken yeah. to them. <laughs> it's the kind of thing he collects. Yeah, that's true. You never know. <laughs> that, that'd be kind of funny to, to see when the auction is finally over, uh, you know, purchased by Lord British. What? <laughs> People have only ever talked about men on the moon, and that's because... W- women on the moon just hasn't happened yet but to redress this gender imbalance russia is planning to send a sextet of women on the first ever properly unmanned that is without blokes 
lunar mission in 2029. This week, cosmonauts have started their first isolation tests, which requires the six selected women to live for eight days inside a wooden panelled module at Moscow's Institute of Biomedical Problems. That's a strange name for a department. Biomedical Problems? <laughs> yeah, that... that uh, okay. Sergei Ponomarev, who is supervising the all-female isolation test, says, Such a crew is taking part for the first time in a simulation experiment. It's interesting for us to see what is special about the way female crew communicates. We consider the future of space belongs equally to men and women, and unfortunately we need to catch up a bit after a period when, unfortunately, there hasn't been too many women in space. Right. When asked about the uh, predicted outcome of the test, Paul Omariov responded by saying, We believe women might not only be no worse than men at performing certain tasks in space but actually better while in isolation the crew will conduct 30 experiments and live in close quarters to mimic the physiological pressure of a moon mission this was lost on some of the russian journalists though who asked the women how they would cope without men makeup and hot steamy showers oh my god oh just some casual sexism there just a little bit we are very beautiful without makeup, scientist Daria Komisarova said. Uh, we are doing work, and when you're doing your work, you don't think about men and women. Mm-hmm. Anna Kosmul, another cosmonaut, responded by saying that they won't have time to think about men. Those who will be taking part in the experiment are not concerned whether there are men in their crew, she said. We are here to do a job. Mm-hmm. Other questions suggested that a group of women in isolation would result in bitchiness. But the team leader... Wow. <laughs> Yelena Luchniskaya said, I'm sure we all have education, personal qualities and upbringing at the end of the day. So, so far, I can't imagine what would rattle us. I can't uh. believe people are actually thinking like this where we've had so many women that have been on space missions and achieved so many milestones in space travel, I can't even begin to think of the kind of pressure that um, Valentina Tereshkova must have got. I mean, yeah. I mean, she launched in the 1960s. We're now talking 2015 and people talking like this. But the sad part is, you know, we could bring Stephanie Evans back to talk all about that. And and I, I know another, uh, several other female scientists and so forth who I talk to and follow on Twitter, that they deal with the same kind of crap. And it just amazes me. I have actually had people respond to me on Twitter fully believing that women do not have the biological capabilities mentally to handle sciences. And it just blows my mind. It's like, what the hell are you talking about? You know, and then you talk about like Marie Curie and so forth. Oh, well, they're the exceptions. I'm like, are you for real? Are you, do you really believe that? Dude, you are an embarrassment to men. Sorry. You've yeah, only just, got to man. look at the, the records from schools at the moment. Girls are doing much better in sciences than boys. Oh, yeah. Oh, I can't remember her name, and I, I 
oh, I, I apologize for that. But she actually did the programming for the Apollo 11. But there's a picture of her with a printed version of the code that she used. The code printed off was almost as tall as her. Wow. And she was the programmer for the Apollo 11 mission. And like, like I mentioned when we were talking about the New Horizons mission, 25% of all the people in, involved in that project were women. Yep. But did you see the one photo of, uh, oh, I, I think her name is uh, Daria Komisovara. But the one picture of her... She's in a Starfleet uniform. Yes, I did see that. <laughs> uh, the first thing I thought, yeah, we got a Trekkie on board. I was like, That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome. I did see that. And so it was a white one, wasn't it? A white Starfleet yes. uniform. Yeah. yeah, kind of reminiscent of uh, the motion picture. Yeah, yeah. I was like, that is too cool. They were absolutely right. To look at the ten of them, they are all very attractive. But that's got nothing to do with anything. Their no. scientists are going up no. there to do a job. So. I don't see why that would be such a big deal. Uh, I don't know if they, the uniforms that they've got are, uh, were made for dealing with the press, but the the red really stood out as to say, we mean business. Yeah. And that was awesome to see. It's awesome. Really was. And let, let's hope that um, it actually does succeed, because we mentioned it earlier that the Russians and the Europeans are heading for the moon. So uh, let's see where it goes. Well, I'd love to see it succeed, not just from the fact of, you know, furthering science and saying, hey, you know, we were landing people on the moon again, but it would be really awesome to have all of them come back and just very smugly, justifiably say, you see, women can do it. The assembly is complete for NASA's asteroid sample return aircraft. This is called the OSIRIS-REx. You want to hear what it the full name is Origins Spectral Interpretation Resource Identification Security Regolith Explorer. And that took all month to uh, come out with. <laughs> I think so. They, I, you can just feel that that was naming by committee. <laughs> It's supposed to launch in uh, September 3rd, 2016. And there's only going to be like a 36-day launch window. Sorry, 39-day launch window. It's going to launch on board an Atlas V. It's actually going to use a strap-on solid rocket booster, which is kind of interesting. So the mission is going to launch in, well, with its window, it's going to be either September or October of next year. Uh, otherwise, they're going to have to wait 18 months for another opportunity. And this is going to be a near-Earth object called Bennu. And it's about 500 meters in diameter. So, you know, 1,500 feet, give or take. So it's not a massive object, but what this thing is supposed to do is go out to this, actually collect a sample, and then return that sample to Earth. They're expecting it to return 2023 with that re-entry canister with a parachute-assisted landing, hopefully somewhere in Utah. Now we're getting to the point where I, I know that we've sent spacecraft up to collect comet debris in, uh, like, like, aerospace gel and return that to Earth. But now they're actually talking about, yeah, we're actually going to send a probe up to this object, this, this asteroid, if you want to refer to it that way, and we're going to have it return samples to us. That's neat. That should be interesting, because there are a lot of um, private versions of that out there. As I said, the um, Planetary Resources was one of them, which was having a lot of funding done by James Cameron. Um, I haven't heard anything about that for a while, so whether that's still going ahead, I've, I've got no idea. Yeah, I mean, I didn't see anything in the articles. I don't think this is the same one. I mean, this one is simply, I mean, they're saying it, this one is NASA, and this one's being done by uh, Lockheed Martin out in Colorado. So, yeah, and it expects to return 60 grams or about 2.1 ounces of material for return to Earth. 
it'd be interesting to see how they do that because not only will we be able to do that with asteroids and things I mean they could also have a modified version of it for getting rid of space debris which would be we, we need to do something with that <laughs> that's for sure well actually um, I thought I mentioned this in the last show just briefly but I saw someone was drawing up plans to basically make a massive deflector mm-hmm. you know just just basically a, a huge sheet of metal or whatever kind of material to deflect you know any kind of space debris into the atmosphere so it could burn up mm-hmm. which yeah you're right we need something anybody who has seen gravity and uh, what happens with space debris yeah I'm sure that's not too far from what would actually happen I mean they've had a couple of near misses on the ice as, as it is I mean they had a couple of I've had one this year actually where they've had to um, get into a capsule just in case um, yep. something happened but they managed to manoeuvre the ISS slightly so that it uh, missed it yeah. and those are the fragments that they know about yeah that's a that's a scary business that is I mean uh, hence why they have to have the, the, the capsules there they are basically lifeboats yeah well you figure how many th- hundreds of thousands of miles per hour are those things moving mm-hmm yeah, a collision on that could be really, even just a tiny piece, you know, the size of a speck of dust could create a, a bad impact on the space station or anything else that's up there. Scientists in Edinburgh have found a planet-like object 75 light years away from Earth, which is called, there we go, PSO J318.5-22. <laughs> <laughs> Almost as bad as these acronyms. (laughs) And is considered one of the strangest ever discovered because it has no parent star. It's about the same size as Jupiter and it floats freely out on its own in space. The scientists estimate that it is only about 20 million years old, so it's it's only a a kid, really, in a class of planets or exoplanets. Edinburgh University astronomers used a telescope in Chile to to show it uh, that it is covered in multiple layers of thick and thin cloud. Without the dazzling light of a parent star, the team was able to carry out accurate measurements of the object's varying brightness. They estimate that the temperatures inside the clouds exceed to 800 degrees centigrade. The clouds were made up of hot dust and molten iron. Dr. Beth Biller of the University of Edinburgh's School of Physics and Astronomy said that this discovery shows how omnipresent clouds are in planets and planet-like objects. We're working on and extending this technique to giant planets around young stars, and eventually we hope to detect weather in Earth-like exoplanets that may be harboring life. That's Uh, just weird to think of. A planet not orbiting anything. Yeah, just floating around on its own. (laughs) Probably the most unusual thing found this year. Um, No, no, no. I would have to say there's something else that was found to be quite unusual. Except this one is feeding some interesting theories. Well, apparently the Kepler Space Telescope has been staring at this, uh, this one area since 2009 and they found that this one particular star had tiny dips in it. And I mean, that's kind of what Kepler does. It looks for these dips in, in brightness and so forth to determine, is that a planet? You know, are, are there planets orbiting this star? So it's pretty reliable to figure that out, especially if it's a regular change in, in the light. So they found one that, well, it doesn't appear to be a planet, but it appears to be a 
some kind of mass, possibly several large broken pieces that are orbiting this star. But normally that would be expected if this, it was like a younger star system and it's still just gathering all of that data and, and so forth and, and the matter is coalescing and, and all of that. Except this appears to be a rather mature star, but yet there's this, this cluster of objects that are circling it. And I mean, it's big enough that significant amount of light is not getting through. So right now they really have no real idea of what it is. It could be just uh, sections of a large asteroid that broke up, many several asteroids that came together. They don't know. But what I find to be really weird uh, <laughs> is that uh, someone from my alma mater, Penn State University, a guy by the name of Jason Wright, is set to publish an interpretation of this, basically claiming that that could be the product of extraterrestrial civilizations. Not saying it couldn't be. I have no proof either way. And I firmly believe that we are not the only sentient life in the universe. But still, there's that, that other side of me that says, yeah, you're kidding, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but he says that he and his co-authors say that the star's unusual light pattern is consistent with, and this is a quote, a swarm of megastructures. So uh, he says that possibly they're stellar light collectors, uh, a Star Trek fans will probably think of Dyson spheres you know or something to that effect but you know, he says that aliens should always be the last hypothesis you consider but this looked like something you would expect an alien civilization to build so <laughs> the, the folks are hoping that uh, SETI will be able to get uh, one of the massive radio arrays to just take a look at it and see is there any shall we say unnatural radio signals coming from that star so you know if you can and if they do find something they would like the very large array in new mexico uh to be able to further analyze that signal to see if maybe they're getting something from a more technological source instead of a natural source so i don't know what to think about that yeah, it's a bit of an odd one now, isn't it? It is, because they said that they, they had Kepler looking at something like 150,000 different stars, and this was the only one that produced that kind of, of dimming in, in light. For the, for, you know, so it's just they don't really know what it is. So if it's a planet, it, would, it does something different. But yeah. it's like this has enough that it's like light is getting through, but it's still being blocked which is why they're, they're kind of estimating that maybe it's a clump of asteroids, maybe even dead comets that have come together. So they're not one physical unit, but yet their gravity is keeping themselves together. I mean, I see where they're going with that, but I don't know. Uh, I think it'd be kind of cool if it really was an alien civilization. It'd also be just kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. And, and I support SETI. You know, what the hell? Why not? Why not? If they can pick up something great we'll never know until we try so from that aspect i support seti mm -hmm. but then i guess the reality of yeah there we, we found something is just i don't know i don't want to say unsettling but it's simultaneously fascinating fascinating captain and simultaneously really weird so they have you know some of the signals that they've had in the in the past i mean you must have heard of i think it was called the wow signal yes mm -hmm. was it something like 1970 
78, 79, something mm-hmm. like yep. that. And then they didn't actually have the recorders on to actually record it at the time to actually hear the signal. They've got it on the readout. They got it on the printout. Yep. It's com- it stands out like a sore thumb. Oh I've yeah, it does. Got, I've got a copy of it somewhere actually. <laughs> you know, something's there. Something's definitely there. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but that that was just one of those those interesting things that I, I don't know what to think about it at this point. But I'm not I'm not dismissing the possibility of you know alien life. Mm-hmm. It's certainly a possibility. Might be remote as, as all hell, but it's certainly a possibility. Probably not life as we know it. As I say, they probably could find life on other planets, but it's probably going to be a molecular thing rather than a physical being like us. Uh, it's going to be... Oh, damn it, Mark. You said it's not life as we know it, and now I have the song Star Trek and stuck in my head. <laughs> Man... It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Not as we know it. Not as we know it. Ah, <sighs> oh, Mark. <laughs> that, that, that got to number one for weeks in the UK. You ever seen the video for that? Yeah. It's hysterical. It's um, claymation, isn't it? <laughs> Imagine you were working on a 40-year-old computer at your office. Your IT department wouldn't even know what to do with it. And that's the problem NASA's Voyager mission faces. Oh, man. Yeah, I read about this. The spacecraft was built in 1975 and as a computer from the Atari age. And the last guy who truly understands how to program it is an 80-year-old man called Larry Zottarelli. And he's retiring. Yep. NASA's Voyager 1 spacecraft is 20 billion kilometers away from Earth. And in 2013, it became the first man-made object to leave the solar system. The primary mission of Voyager was to explore Jupiter and Saturn, but its mission was extended long beyond its intended purpose. Yeah. Needless to say, it's a little difficult to upgrade its onboard computer. (laughs) It's like flying an Apple II computer, said Susie Dodd, Voyager's project manager. It should be in a museum. Yeah. Zotarelli has, has been on the Voyager mission since the day it was launched, September the 5th, 1977. He works on Voyager's flight data systems, which have just 64 kilobytes of memory and run a long since retired computer language. I don't actually know what language it actually... Uh, okay, it, it, there are two languages that they're concerned about. And the scary part is, dude, I could do this job for them because I studied <laughs> both languages. One of them is Fortran. Uh-huh. I actually did take Fortran courses in college. Um, and, and as I remember, it's actually not a difficult language to program. Fortran is meant specifically for scientific use because it can calculate numbers to ridiculous decimal points. So Fortran is one of them. And the other one, and this is the language that I used when I first started getting into IT, is COBOL. Ah, now, now you're talking my language. Yeah, so... <laughs> COBOL yeah, and the, Pascal. The job requires COBOL and Fortran skills obviously the only people who would know those are uh you know old farts you know me or older <laughs> because both of those like i mean fortran my god i i don't even know the last time i heard that somebody used fortran cobol actually is not cobol is still being used mm-hmm. it's being used a lot because it's fast it's very easy to program for the language is very very english-like mm-hmm. uh it's just really wordy uh, so, you know, even just trying to print hello, you need like 70 lines of code um, just because of, of getting everything prepped and set up. 
but I still remember all the stuff needed for COBOL, and I'm sure Fortran is just a matter of recall. <laughs> uh, NASA, call me. <laughs> I'll just read what else it said here. To dis- determine that Voyager 1 had left the solar system, the team had to listen to audio recordings recorded by Voyager's 8-track tape recorder. <laughs> Um, interstellar space sounds different than the outer reaches of the solar system but Voyager was only programmed to play back its recordings for 45 seconds twice Mm -hmm. a year Uh, Dodd wanted to get Voyager to speed that bit up a bit (laughs) and and Zotarelli was her guy Larry is a puzzle solver she said it's like Tetris you have to figure out how all, all the blocks best fit together except when you put things in you have to take out other bits <laughs> yeah well yeah especially when you're talking about such a limited amount of memory and so forth and if i remember correctly this is the part that would uh screw up my possibility of doing this they also require assembly language which is like the most hardware basic language but oh man is that a bear i took one look at assembly language i had the opportunity to take that in college and i said <laughs> no wow so, uh, oh yeah it's it's a really rough language to learn and it, it's hardware specific too so you can't necessarily take assembly language for one computer and utilize it on another but it, i mean we're talking you are actually directly addressing memory registers yeah so that ju- no i can't my, my brain short-circuited on that one I mean, as I say, I, 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 well, I probably couldn't do it now, but um, COBOL, I, I did a little bit when I was at college, uh, and Pascal. Oh, I loved Pascal. Fortran is actually not, if I remember correctly, Fortran is not that different from Pascal. I love Pascal. I kind of wish it was still in use. Mm-hmm. I used to program so much in Pascal. Uh, they, they were the main ones we used, and obviously I started off on basic <laughs> oh yeah absolutely every, every, I think a lot of people started off on basic to be honest with you dude Radio Shack TRS-80 Model 1 basic because <laughs> we had obviously we had Sinclair basic here and BBC basic uh, which was because uh, the BBC used to have their own computer uh, uh, commercial huh. computer um, the idea was that every school in the uh, country would have a BBC Micro, <laughs> and they did for a while. But um, that's cool. Uh, Basic's a cool language, though. There's nothing. I mean, it's a great beginner language. Mm-hmm. We had a thing here called the the Doomsday Project, uh, which doesn't uh, is not as bad as it sounds. <laughs> um, the, the, it's based around an old book that was around the time of uh, William the Conqueror called the Doomsday Book, which was basically a census. Um, of everybody that was around Britain at the time. And in 1986, they developed an idea that why don't we get the kids around the UK to get involved in this project to find out about their local towns, about Mm -hmm. the businesses and everything else that's there, send their data and photographs back to us at the BBC, and we will put it on this special kind of... It was like a laser disc that was hooked up. Okay, so it was all for archiving. Yeah. Also, it was doomsday, as in if something happened, we'd have a record of what the world was like. Yeah. That's kind of cool. But Uh there is not a single computer now in the country (laughs) that can actually read this disc. Yeah, that is is a drawback. (laughs) (laughs) There was a, a project to try and get it all put onto the internet. Everything that was on, they, they managed to get one working, 
and then they were attempting to put it all onto the internet but the guy who was doing it he died yes and um, I don't know what happened after that it just completely defunct and uh, it was it was fun yeah. it, it was fun at the time to get involved in it you know back in 86 uh, yeah. I, I was 13 <laughs> And uh, getting involved and uh, taking photographs of local businesses, and uh, there was maps and things, and uh, we thought, oh yeah, this is the future. And in, in respect, it is. It's, it's basically Google Maps, <laughs> yeah. or um, you know, Street View and things like that. But yeah, it's a shame that the disc can't be accessed now. Yeah, uh, that you know, as much as I do love advancing technology. There are just times where analog is better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's like I, there was there was a similar kind of thing back in Los Angeles shortly after the end of World War II, where I, I can't remember the name of the project or whatever, but but someone flew a plane at lower altitudes and just constantly taking photos of Los Angeles. All right. And so, I mean, and it was only it was I would say if you look at the photos, it would look like they were only a couple hundred feet above the ground. And in fact, if you've ever played the game L.A. Noir, the guys who did that used those photos to recreate downtown Los Angeles to exactly the way it was when those photos were taken. So they boast that the Los Angeles you see in the game is like 90% accurate to what it really was like. And I've also made this argument when it comes to, you know, people keep talking about how film needs to go away, film needs to go away. And I keep saying no. Film needs to stay. You can record any movie you want digitally. We need film as an archival method uh, because you know, now we know how to how to make them last for hundreds of years. You know, regarding the chemical composition and proper storage, temperatures, and humidity, and all that. We need 35 millimeter film to stick around so that we can dump everything to it, store it off in an archive. You know, because yes, right now there is a standard for digital video when it comes to movie theaters and all of that. Yeah, we've got DVD and Blu-ray, but yeah, try reading an old uh, CED video disc. Yeah, you know they, they've still got laser disc players around. That's not an issue. But you know, with thirty-five millimeter, we could you could probably three D print a three a thirty-five millimeter projector now if you needed to. You know, it's. Because the, the the processes behind it are very very simple. So, it's just one of those things where sometimes analog is better. Well, how many video files did you have for Windows three one that you can't play anymore? Yeah, you you even if you still have the discs and so forth, the format can't be read. You know, so I mean, I'm not I'm not trying to bash digital, but I'm just saying for certain things like that, really they should be going to something a bit more ubiquitous uh, for storage. And digital media, sorry, really isn't it. No, it's uh, so easy to, to for things to corrupt, and um, you got no unless you back. You got to back up this and back up that, and right. Uh, you're just using mounts and mounts of drives just to back things up the whole time. Well, I mean, it's funny. I've got. I don't know if you saw the, the pictures that I put up on Facebook, but I've got an old. It's either twenty. 40 or 60 megabyte drive Mm -hmm. this thing my sister found this in her house when she was cleaning it out and this uses what's called an MFM format there are absolutely no modern computers that can read this thing because it doesn't have the right interface Uh, and even if it did have the right interface doesn't mean that who knows how the hell it was formatted 
you know. But just the fact that you can't even plug this into any modern computer, you'd have to get one that's probably 20 years old. You know, so I've got so I've got the example for that right here. I can't do anything with it. It looks cool because it's huge. Yeah, it's like five inches tall, five inches wide and like seven inches deep. And it weighs over five pounds. (laughs) And this thing is like only at most 60 megs of data. But whatever data is on there, I'm never accessing it again. I can't. So, we can't have a show go by without some talk about Pluto, and it's probably going to continue for the next year until it's done sending its data back. And even then, who knows? There's there's more stuff coming. They've had a couple of really, really cool shots coming back. One is a very unusual pattern on the surface in that, that area that looks like the heart. Yeah. And they don't know what's causing it, but it looks like it could be that the the surface itself is made out of volatile ices like nitrogen and so forth but there are all these little pits and troughs in it that they can't explain so some of them are hundreds of meters across and several you know tens of meters deep and they're trying to figure out what's forming them but they don't know and it's really cool to look at it because you can see that it, they do follow some kind of pattern but it, it, it kind of reminds me of the way they describe the, the pits and so forth on a DVD layer <laughs> they, yeah. look, they look kind of like that but the, the one thing that they find about this is that that's proof uh, considering that there are no craters either they're, they're saying that this is all proof that the, the geology of Pluto is a lot younger than they expected it to be and that, that's one of those things that's really cool. And turns out that if you were on the surface of Pluto, you'd have a blue sky, too. Ah. They actually, you know, they just got pictures of it from behind where you're able to see what atmosphere it does have. And they said that, yeah, when they run it through a red-blue-green filter to try to get the color as accurately as possible, it's actually a blue atmosphere, blue sky. Wow. So uh, this was taken by their multispectral visible imaging camera. And, and again, you know, they, they generate software. They take separate blue, red, green images, and then they combine it. And they actually determined that if you were on the surface, the sky would be blue. It's a similar process, by the way. We have a blue sky where it's simply light getting diffracted from really small uh, particles in the air. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it's nitrogen or whatever... And it's a little bit more complex on Pluto because obviously they don't have the same kind of atmosphere that we do. But it still comes down to that there are small particles that are breaking the light. So they, yeah, they've actually determined that you would have a, a blue surface. And you, you were mentioned about some of the images of um, some of these pits and troughs and things that yeah. are on the surface there. Um, I noticed they, they did a, a 3D image of them as well. Ooh, I haven't seen that. NASA does like their 3D images. I will give them that. And really, that is a great way to look at some of these planets and, and, and surfaces and so forth. I'm going to have to look that one up. Noticed that the other day because somebody, well, somebody sent me a link on, on Facebook. There you go. Again, one of our followers on, on, on Facebook sent a link, uh, which is coming in quite handy lately. Uh, a lot of the, the stories that I come up with has been passed on to me by other people. So. There you go. Hey, <laughs> we've got awesome listeners. That's what it means. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, NASA does love their 3D images. In fact, I, I still have an image of, as it was approaching Pluto. 
and a great stereoscopic 3D image uh, that was composited by Brian May himself, which was very cool. Yeah, there's still more data coming back, and they found out with some higher resolution photos of Sharon, or I know it's Sharon, Charon, whatever. I, I will respect the original creator and, and or the original founder of all of this and, and say Sharon, but they've also found that that also has some really weird geological features to it. It looks almost like the planet shed off half of the layer of the surface. Mm-hmm. It, it's just really weird looking and obviously they don't, they're not sure why. Obviously they can only speculate, but they expected it to pretty much be like the moon, you know, just kind of just barren and flat with crater marks here and there and so forth. And then the images that are being returned are showing that, no, there are actually a lot of surface variations to it. Mountains, canyons, evidence of landslides. Uh, of course, it's got that big red area in, in the northern pole area. It looks like what they're, what they're calling a fracture that goes roughly around its equatorial area, but that includes a canyon that stretches more than a thousand miles wide, which is four times as long as the Grand Canyon and twice as deep as the Grand Canyon in some places. And again, they're not really sure what happened there. The speculation, because obviously that's all they can do, is that there might have been some kind of ocean, maybe not of water, but of some other chemical, and then disappeared and the change in mass from that disappearing kind of changed the surface and ended up fracturing it and splitting it up again this is all just speculation but it's still really cool to just to see all of these and to realize hey you know what there's a lot more variation to these worlds than we originally thought I still remember when they were initially talking about some of the images that were coming back from Pluto, and the one guy was saying that, yeah, we pretty much have to go back and rewrite a lot of planetary evolution theories that we had. <laughs> and I think that's going to happen a lot more. Which is cool. I'm, it's Hey, <laughs> let's get these new engines so that we can send more ships out there. Mm -hmm. I want to know more. <laughs> <laughs> it's happening a lot more frequent than it used to and, and that's because well we've mentioned it a couple of times that these these craft that were only supposed to do a certain thing are, are extending their usage uh, and becoming yeah. able to travel out even further i'm interested to see what they can come up with next with with other things that are traveling uh, you know whether it's voyager one you know or the uh, new horizons mm-hmm going off to its next destination. I really hope they get funding. You know, a part of me says I can't imagine that they wouldn't because this is taking on so much interest around the world. But then I think U.S. Congress, and that's all I need to, to have my hopes dashed. Yeah. It doesn't make sense that um, Congress thinks that way because, you know, for a while after the, the shuttle missions folded up, people away from the space community actually thought NASA had finished. Yeah. And it's because of missions like New Horizons that people firmly know that NASA are still there. Yeah, that and, uh, well, like I said, the, the new probes that are coming back from, like the Cassini probe and so forth, that's returning some amazing images. You know, And then, of course, the uh, rovers. They're producing some uh, really interesting imagery as well. Um, and that can only get better because, you know, there's other 
missions going to Mars as well. Uh, we're not mm-hmm. just talking about the manned missions, but with the um, the ESA mission, the Exo Mars uh, mission that they've got. When did we say it was? 2018, I think they're yeah, going to be so. launching that. That's going to be another interesting one. And so there's always stuff happening, um, and you know it's all to do with partnership and i'm one of these people and there's a lot of us like it when you say oh you know nasa or it's america's space program Mm -mm. i don't look at it that way no not anymore well when you consider that the service module for the orion is going to be made by ESA. There's NASA stuff in ESA, there's Russians are involved in things, Chinese are involved in things, yep. Japanese are involved in things. Yep. ESA's just welcomed its latest member. Uh, Estonia has now joined ESA. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, the Cold War's over, guys. This is for everybody anymore. That, I mean, that's I'll admit, when I watched the whole uh, New Horizons thing, live as it was happening... And then they started going about how, you know, USA, USA, USA. I'm like, wow, guys, really? I was really uncomfortable when they were doing that. It's like, no, 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 no. This is for everybody on the planet. Knock it off with the jingoism, please. Mm-hmm. You know, rah, rah, America, shut up. <laughs> so, I, I, I must admit when that started happening, I mean, all right, when the actual data started coming through, that was of great interest but you know the, all the hype of uh, um, we've made contact we've made contact come back at a certain time to find out what's happened you come back yeah. and it's just a load of flag waving it's not what it's all about really no it's not yeah go ahead and and, and throw that line out there about the USA is the first country to send a probe to each planet okay fine we're done now can we get to the science <laughs> that bit put a little bit of a dampener on it but the late, later on uh, like when we were saying before where um, the date started coming through and then the camera turned round to you got Alan Stern busting through the door <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's all about <laughs> the passion was there you could see it oh yeah <laughs> that's what it was all about that sort of thing and just the images that are coming back are just astounding <laughs> NASA has released over 8,400 images on Flickr, of all places, but, you know, whatever, regarding the uh, Apollo missions, you know, some of which have never been seen before, but all of these images supposedly have been rescanned from the originals, and they're now available at a resolution of up to 1,800 DPI. That's some amazing... You figure yeah. standard print services, normally, like, whether it's a magazine or whatever, they kind of standardize at 300 dots per inch, sometimes 72, but now these guys are releasing it at 1,800 dots per inch, and what makes that even more amazing is that they were using Hasselblad cameras. I hope to God I'm pronouncing that right, but these things actually use what's called a medium format frame, so they're about three or four times as large as a standard 35 millimeter frame. So these things have the image quality of closer to a 70 millimeter piece of film. Mm-hmm. That is amazing quality. Again, it comes down to what condition the original film is in yeah. and what the quality of the original stock was. You could show this on a 4K Ultra HD TV and you still won't be seeing the full resolution. That's it. You, I mean, some of the fit pictures that they haven't shown, I mean, I, I know a lot of the footage that they, they shot uh, was overexposed. Yeah. I, I know that. But the 
the ones that did come through and they've put on Flickr, some of it just blows you away. It's amazing. I mean, you, it's absolutely amazing. You cannot imagine that this was the 1960s. You know, some of it you look at and you go, this is clearly the 1960s. It's, it looks like the 60s, I, even though it's on the moon. Right. Um, but it, um, I'm talking about the shots that there's a few there with the landers and the, uh, not the landers, the rovers and the some of the experiments they would do when they would grabbing some of the, the regolith and the, the rocks and things. And those are the ones that really do stand out. But the ones that are in black and white, the imagery is just I don't know what it is about black and white shots. But it just it, creates it's the high a, contrast. Yeah, and it creates it's really a high contrast mood, doesn't it? It creates a mood, and um, yeah, it, it just staggering to see some of them. Yeah. Well, well, that's the thing with with black and white. Yeah, there's a mood, but with color, you have to account for the various ability to store the color in the film. Mm-hmm. And I mean, back then, color was it wasn't new. But it's certainly nowhere near as advanced as it got, you know, as time moved on. And black and white just has a, a clarity to it that, at the time, just color couldn't keep up with, really. And when you're talking film that was almost 70 millimeter, that's, that's an incredible... I'll bet that you couldn't even get the full resolution from that picture on, like, the new 8K TVs that Japan is doing. Just because there's just so much clarity there. And the, the best part is, there's 8,400 photos, but they have not yet included images from Apollos 7, 8, 9, 10, or 13. So, they've still got a lot of other Apollo missions that they can uh, scan and, and preserve and upload. So, yeah. this 8,400 is just, it's just a small portion of what they could be able to put up there. Some of the ones from 13, I think, would be interesting to see. It has always been one of my favorite of the missions. Uh, a lot, of, you know, a lot of people consider it a failure. As far as I'm concerned, it never was a failure because you had guys on the ground trying to work out how to solve this problem with very basic facilities to be able to do it with. Yeah. And to actually get those lads back to Earth. Oh. That to me is not a failure. No, I mean, yes, they weren't able to do the mission they set out to do, but that doesn't matter. What they did there was remarkable. I always remember seeing the the footage of that where, obviously, you've got that point where there's a complete blackout of communications, Mm -hmm. and you've got, like, people like Walter Cronkite with their fingers crossed, (laughs) waiting to hear... A voice coming through as the uh, the capsule splashes down, and then to find that they're, they're okay, it was just yeah amazing, really was. And it's a similar thing um, with the other missions on the, um, the shuttle missions, like when they discovered the the bit of the the spacing stuff between the tiles on the on the shuttle, mm-hmm. um, trying to find a way of dislodging that spacing stuff without damaging the tiles and it was probably one of the most simplest things to do it was basically a hacksaw blade wasn't it and you know you had teams of people going back into labs going right we need to find a way of dealing with this because if we don't deal with it and that catches fire or whatever on on re-entry these people are going to die and you can imagine the tension that was in these labs and and um 
workspaces where they were trying to come up with something and you know, time was running out and amazing stuff. Yeah, especially really when is. you look at the, the that iconic photo where they actually show the damage mm-hmm. to that capsule. It, it's just, you think, how the hell did they even survive that? Because it looks like that whole site is just ripped out. Yeah, it's... Oh. So yeah, we, we can expect a lot more photos and, and you know, Apollo 13 is one of those that still need to have these photos released, so who knows what we're going to be able to get from that. Oh, yeah. Spanhead Productions are a small, independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialise in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visit us now, spanheadproductions.com. Weebly.com. That's spamheadproductions.weebly.com. Well, that brings us to the end of another cosmic episode. Once again, thanks, John, for co piloting with me tonight. Thank you, sir, for putting up with me for yet one more show. I don't know how you do it. <laughs> it's always a pleasure. <laughs> So the only thing left to say is take care one and all. Thanks for listening and we'll speak to you all again real soon. Toodles! Well that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit www.tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. Let us know what you think of the show. Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because your input is our output. Or you can use the social media icons at the top of the page that include Twitter and Facebook. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also TuneIn and Stitcher On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can also listen to rebroadcasts of all our shows on the Awake Radio Group. You can find a link on our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages and don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event.